This is an ABC podcast. Hello there. Welcome to the best of the minefield from 2022. Happy New Year. Uh, This is a complicated one because it's going to air in both 2022 and 2023 (laughs) because there's a repeat of this episode. Uh, The second of the repeat goes to air on the 1st of January. So... I mean, two years at once. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Well, Lee Daly is my name. How this is mind-bending stuff, Scott. <laughs> what do we do? Commiserations and Happy New Year all in the one breath? I, I don't know. It, it's actually, it's really interesting, right? Because we <laughs> cannot answer a question simply on in what year this show is. That's right. That would torture me as a, like as a teenager, that sort of question. I would, it would take months for me to work through it. And uncool from the fetal position. Well, see, now the teenage adolescent will lead as someone who I'd very much like to meet. I would give it maybe <laughs> half a thought and move on as quickly as humanly possible. Possibly. I mean, let's be honest, you've met him. Oh, right. <laughs> so, uh, I, haven't, I haven't grown. I mean, you know, whatever. Um, so with, with the Best Of series, last week we were from one of our, you know how we do these various series within the year. Yeah. Um, and we had one from last week, which is from our Minefield Book Club style thing. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's the name we should give it. The Minefield, Minefield Book, Book Club, Club style thing. Style thing. <laughs> uh, it's the best one so far. <laughs> um, this is from another series. That's um, right. One that's a bit more established. We've sort of done it every year. And that's our Ramadan series, mm. which I always quite like because it's kind of quietly scandalous that we just ignore everything and go off and on a frolic. <laughs> well, a frolic is a bit dismissive, isn't it? But um, to think about stuff that I suppose matters in a more enduring sense rather yeah. than being particular to the moment. And as I pointed out last week, I missed the meeting. So I, I don't know exactly how you ended up with this one, but, but why did you choose this one? Well, I mean, I would even say that our Ramadan series is the furthest thing from a frolic that we can do. In fact, yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I find it liberating every year we'll eat. Of course, we worry about what's going on, but not to have to develop an opinion about what's going on and instead trying to give ourselves over to those things which endure. And one of the uh, reasons that we chose the particular theme for this most recent Ramadan series is the idea of limit, the idea of restraint, of purification, of taking away that which is incidental or unnecessary or harmful or deleterious and giving ourselves over to those things that are our, and the words of Henry David Thoreau, life's true necessities, those things that really do nourish, those things that give us the clearest sense of what it is that matters most in the world. So this most recent Ramadan series, we explored issues like purification, the restraining the constraints of desire, chastening speech. We looked at hunger and restraint uh, when it comes to food and feasting. But I think one of the most important episodes we did is the one that we're rerunning now, which was the constraint of the eyes, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, given the fact that our society is so visually saturated and promiscuous in our visuality, Which is actually something, by the way, that Queen did a whole song about when it comes to Radio (laughs) Gaga. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, The the allure of visuality and getting back to something like the proper restraint of the eyes, taking care of what it is we see and therefore what it is we're able to give attention to. It was an important episode, and I think it's one of the ones that we are best to carry on into the new year. All right. Well, here it is. Let's hope it delivers for you. One of the worst experiences of my life, it was within, and I do mean this, I'm I'm simply judging this by the fact that I think about it every two or three days. Uh, It was in my first few months, having come to the ABC, I had no experience in broadcasting, and I was thrown in the deep end, having to interview three very, very distinguished persons whose work I'd spent a great deal of time reading. They were all cramped together in a studio at, at the BBC in London. And I had sort of drawn up the topic and, you know, we arranged them to be in the studio and and I did my best to make my way through it to be a good interlocutor and interviewer, but not to insert myself too much in the course of the conversation. They, um, They were terrific. They thought that the program was at an end. The mic was still hot. My headphones were still on. 
and they began saying everything that they thought was wrong with the way that I'd conducted that show. And, you know, Waleed, it has stuck with me ever since. I can tell you verbatim what they said. And, you know... Were they right? Yeah, absolutely they were right. But it was horrible. It just, it, that's the sort of thing that reminds me that what we say and the lack of tact with which we say it can have extraordinary moral consequences in the lives of other people. But also the language that we use creates habits of looking. This was one of the really true, I think, monumental moral insights, both of two of my favorite philosophers, Simone Weil and Iris Murdoch, that we learn to look by the language that we use and our language is shaped by the way that we look. We grow by looking and we sharpen our language by looking well, by attending well to other people. So there's something kind of nice, I think, about attending carefully to the language that we use and the spaces, the necessary spaces for silence, the allowing for fewer words rather than more. These create the conditions within which life-giving language, language as a form of moral encounter, uh, can in fact arise. That then creates the conditions within which we can see better, within which we can look at proper objects of our gaze with a, with a degree of sharpness, with a certain attentiveness. But as I'm hoping you'll now pick up, we are living in an age of image saturation. So much so, I, I'm, I'm actually not sure you, you agree with this, but it strikes me that so many of these platforms that were meant to publish and circulate hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of words every day, most of these platforms have now essentially given way to being essentially the distributor of hieroglyphs or of images like emojis or of short form little videos like either TikTok or YouTube or, or little gifts. It strikes me at every turn that words are receding because we feel that images carry most of either the affective value that we want to communicate or else images are the only way of, of grabbing people's attention long enough to get them to, to look at something. It's, it's so interesting you say that because I think you're right at the same time as being wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, Isn't that usually so, the case? So that, yeah, well, I guess. I mean, and what I just said makes no sense, I guess. So let me explain. The idea of media, sorry, not media saturation, of mm. image saturation yeah. and of the moral consequences of that, I think, uh, I think that's true and I think it's real. I think it's urgent and I think we are far too complacent about it. But at the same time as that, I've had this thought over a long period of time now that I'm actually blown away with the amount of time people spend reading now because so much of online life does require reading. Mm. I, I get there are those elements that don't, but the person who is spending inordinate amounts of time on Twitter or Facebook is reading a lot. The person who is scanning the news for that which is either important or right through to that which is sensational and merely confirms their prejudices. They're reading a lot. Um, my concern is not so much that people aren't reading. My concern is with what they're reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't exclude myself from that. I don't mean it to come across like that, what, what we're reading. Yeah, but so can I just say probably the one little additional, and I, I think you're absolutely right, the one thing that I'd add to that is anybody who spent any time in the industry that you and I live in Uh, who have seen the amount of time that people on average spend on, say, an average news story, gives one... Yeah, the skimming thing. Yeah, yeah, it gives one the very clear sense that I'm not... I think there are lots of words being looked at. I'm not wholly (laughs) certain how much reading there, in fact, is. So looking at words as distinct from reading, (laughs) this is a... Right. No, I think that's true... But what's interesting, I think, is they tend to go from looking at one set of words to looking at another very quickly. Right? Mm, that's, so that's absolutely right. It, it, it's yeah. not the same as um, I pick up a newspaper, I look at it for 20 minutes or whatever, I put it away, I go about my day. It's it's a constant bombardment of words. Mm. And then if you are someone who's engaged online, whatever that word really means, but you know, you, you could be involved in some kind of internet 
thread about something on could be Reddit or whatever, you're doing a lot of reading actually, and you're doing a lot of writing as well. Hmm. So there are actually skills of quite extraordinary literacy that are required for all this at the same time as they don't seem to heighten our literacy because I think of the, I think the nature of what's, what's being read. Now, it's possible that what I'm describing is of a different internet age, you know, internet 1.0, internet 2.0 and less 3.0, I think are we up to? Or what, I'm not even sure what 3.0 uh, denotes, but we have moved into a much more visual, like even if you were just to look at social media or even news websites, I mean, mm. they're, they're much more visual than they used to be, right? Yes, it's it, true. There's, there's video everywhere. There's, there are picture, you see the picture before you see the headline very often. Um, but do you also know the way, for instance, that paragraphs in a story that you go into, the paragraphs are getting shorter and shorter and the paragraphs are becoming increasingly interspersed with either images that are vaguely related to the story or, you know, yeah. it mentions, for instance, the opposition leader. Therefore, there has to be a picture of the opposition leader. So it's even yes. the images themselves are broken up and interspersed with images to such a degree that anything like sort of flow or continuity of argument is almost ruled out in advance. Yeah, yeah, which is something I've definitely noticed because mm. when you break every sentence into a paragraph, it becomes very difficult. I actually find it, it was harder to follow. Yeah, I don't know why right. people do that. Um, because we're looking at words instead of reading. That's yeah. why. This is the imagification of words. This is the turning of words into images and the images of those words. I mean, this is one of the reasons, for instance, we have the hyperbolization of language the overly affective nature of so much of the online writing, the prevalence, the ubiquity of the word impact, for instance, we've, we've talked about on other occasions I won't get into again. You can look at it at a glance. You can take it in at a glance and you know what that quote unquote paragraph <laughs> or that isolated sentence, what it is it's meant to convey. Can, can I just mention just one really quick thing? You can leave it on the floor or you can take it up. <laughs> okay. Even the use of words that you were describing before, the fact that we're writing so much and the fact that we're reading so much. There is this remarkable book from about six or seven years ago by Sherry Turkle called Reclaiming Conversation. She's a psychoanalyst and a, a tech uh, ethicist. She was alarmed by the way that she could not get her students to front up in her office for professor-student interviews. Instead, she said, they insisted on emailing because by writing, they wanted to manicure. They wanted to confect or present the best possible versions of themselves, which they did not feel they would be able to do in person. In other words, even these forms of reading and writing, and I'm saying this because I'm hoping we can pick it up later. These are forms of reading and writing without the possibility of moral encounter. They are the presentation of words as a way of standing in for the reality, the moral reality of another person, which is to say it's the commodification of a certain form of communication rather than communication as something that brings two people authentically together in a moment of inherent risk. Have you read, um, this reminds me of this brilliant little dissection that Scruton does on this where oh, he, yes. <laughs> he talks about conversation um, in person as being something where neither party can claim sovereignty. Yeah, that's right. And where each party is taking a risk because at every moment in that interaction, you're monitoring for responses and you have to wear the consequences of those mm. responses and so on. But you don't have sovereignty. You can't just end the conversation. Mm. Whereas once you have it mediated via something like an email or a text message or whatever, then what actually happens is you distort this relationship, you create something else that isn't really a relationship because you have total sovereignty. You can just close the tab and that's it. The mm. other person may not even know you've done it and there is nothing they can do about that. Just no. Whereas in a, in a physical conversation, even if you want to get up and walk away, you have to do that. Mm. You have to do it in front of them. Right? This is, there's something that, so I think that notion of sovereignty and the claiming or the reclamation of sovereignty in these sort of virtual exchanges, I think is a really interesting and important one. And I think it underscores, or it helps us understand perhaps why it is that people, um, there are a lot of people, and, and this is probably observable mostly generationally, but not exclusively so, that, who just seem only comfortable texting. Yeah. So the minute it's a phone call, it becomes, there's, there's something abrasive about mm. it. Or threatening. And I, yeah, and I suspect... Yeah. 
what's probably happening there is the loss of sovereignty. Mm, interesting. The idea that we should be claiming sovereignty in the course of conversation, I think, is a very suspect notion. I do um, think there's think... maybe there's maybe something else though going on. And I mean, even just when you were talking about there's there is no sovereignty within a within a genuine interpersonal conversation. I mean, just think, Waleed. I mean, I'm not bringing this up just for no reason or because I feel like it. I think this is an integral part of what it is we're talking about. Think about those moments when you're talking with somebody. You may or may not know them intimately, but you say something and there's that flash of recognition that just darts instantaneously across their face. It's indescribable, but it's communicable. Mm. Or that moment where you say something and you didn't realize it, but you said something wrong and there's that barely disguised wince of pain. Conditions of moral encounter are conditions in which those forms of interpersonal communication can be conveyed, can be received, can be responded to or ignored. And all of those other forms of mediated conversation that you described, I mean, to some extent, you could say that it's conveyed by, by voice or by tone. Well, it's also why people do emojis, right? Yes. Well, yeah. It is. It is. That's part of the, that's part of the reason. To, to add a degree of kind of tonal inflection onto words that might yeah, not otherwise. Yeah, and to remove certain tonal ambiguity. Yeah, but... Anyway, we, let's not do the emoji. We're not going to do the emoji. <laughs> okay, can I just make one quick Please. observation before I come back to where we were? I think the other thing that makes me think that we actually read a lot and write a lot now is texting. Hmm. When you consider the volume of words that we produce now in the course of a day, it seems far more than at any other time in my life. You can have an argument about whether those words are sort of inane or not, but but we are doing it a lot. So I don't think it's purely that images saturate our lives, but it is also that images saturate mm. our lives. Perhaps I would put it that way. And I do think that's a problem. But here I want to defer to you because I know you're far better at articulating this than I am. I would just say a couple of things about the saturation of images in our lives. Mm, One geez. is... We have, to return to a concept that I've just used, um, we have no sovereignty over what those images are. We might pretend we do, but actually either they are assaulting us in the form of, you know, visual advertising on billboards or whatever, or they're assaulting us in the form of social media feeds that are usually curated around an algorithm we don't control. Mm. I don't use TikTok, but I understand from people who do that it, stuff just comes at you. It's not, you don't even necessarily see only people you follow, et cetera. Mm. So things just will come at you. I have looked at, and here I'm, I make a very conscious decision not to be involved in social media. So my experience with it is limited, but I have you know, seen the Instagram interface and I've observed it and the way in which it throws suggestions at you, for example, of people that you're not following or, or whatever, or you open the app and there's just a bunch of images that might be there. At least that's, that was the case when I last looked at it. These are things whereby images are not there for a particular reason to support something that is directed at some important purpose, mm -hmm. but they are just inflicted upon you. That's just what happens, right? The billboards on the back of buses, if you're stuck in a traffic jam, you can't avoid, see, right? Now, the, all that is completely inconsequential if you think that the presence of images is more or less neutral or perhaps to the good. I just have this feeling, and here I rely on your articulation, that it's not. Mm -hmm. that there is something imaginatively stunting about images, that there is something even morally compromising about them because they work their way into your heart. Mm. And they can in some way, depending on what they are, of course, they can harden it or soften it. They can, they can callous it. They can do all kinds of things. They have, perhaps in a drip-by-drip drip effect, a kind of formative action upon the character, upon the soul, upon one's moral formation. And here is the bit where I think you quote dozens of philosophers who've made this point deeply. Is that that point, is it? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, look, let's, let's begin not with philosophers, but with theologians. I mean, one of the, one of the ideas that I think underscores just about everything that we want to say over the course of this conversation is that there are good reasons why in certain traditions, particularly uh, the Islamic tradition and in Judaism, that there is a proscription 
against the production of and against the viewing of certain images of certain objects. It's not necessarily, depending on how hard or soft you want to go in certain traditions, it's not necessarily every. And it's certainly not that neither of these traditions have strong senses of aesthetics, much less of aesthetic beauty, quite the contrary. But it's more that there are certain things that are so beyond the realm of sight that have to exert a degree of attraction on an increasingly purified imagination that as soon as you imageify them, as soon as you turn them into idols, in other words, you're so debasing the object that's meant to be represented that that then has um, not directly a corrupting effect on the moral imagination or upon, say, the eyes of the soul, to use a form of language that was often used, but rather that image, like you just said, works its way like a splinter into the soul, such that wherever, whenever you think about this ultimate object of the good or of the beautiful, what gets conjured to mind is this fundamentally debased object. Do you know, I had a, a friend who made this point using Lord of the Rings as an example. <laughs> so to read Lord of the Rings... That, that could have been me, actually. <laughs> it, could have, it could have been you, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't, it wasn't in this case. To read Lord of the Rings is to enter a world of imagination about yeah. these characters and who they are. The minute you see the film... It's gone. That's right. There is a tyranny that's imposed upon it. Gandalf can only look like that. Mm. Mm. You cannot imagine Gandalf in any other way. And you're right to point to the iconoclastic nature of the the Jewish and Islamic traditions in that regard. Certainly in the context of the Islamic tradition, and I think it's true in the Jewish tradition as well, the fear is of idolatry. And so particularly anything that connotes that which is meant to be sacred or holy, this is a, this is a really dangerous area because what you end up doing is replacing something of essence with something that's an icon. Mm, that's right. And then submitting or sanctifying that icon. And of course, in the Islamic tradition, the very, this very strong sense that whatever you imagine, anything you can imagine God to be, God isn't. Hmm. Uh, there, there, is, there is nothing like him. So therefore, any pictorial representation immediately becomes a problem, which is why Islamic art veered into calligraphy and hmm. those sorts of non-pictorial elements. You know, incredible aesthetic, but not pictorial. Now, um, because it unleashes, it, what it unleashes is... I, I would say, a more vast imagination. Yes, I but, think that's right. But this is different, um, but a restrained one as well. This is the thing. We're not to go around trying to imagine God into existence you know, because we know that we will just make it a projection of ourselves mm. and then whatever we imagine will be that. This, of course, stands in contradistinction to the, the Christian tradition, which is much more pictorial tradition. Yes, that's right. Uh, in which the communication of God and the communication of religious stories was done through pictures overwhelmingly. Now, there, so, there is a difference, though. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily popular for saying this, but I do think that Christianity on the whole has actually been far too profligate in its use of and its reliance upon images and, and in the way that it saturates forms of worship and religious gathering with images. Um, these images have tended to an overwhelming degree been projections of whatever it is that particular community wants to believe about the transcendent uh, or about the visage of Jesus Christ or, or whatever. But there is a twist. There is a twist that I've always found really interesting. And it comes in those forms of Christian art that have tried to depict suffering, especially divine suffering. Um, I think here, uh, sort of preeminently of Matthias Groenwald's Eisenheim altarpiece, which, which portrays a kind of a heavily bodied, an extremely carnally kind of overdetermined picture of Christ with green gangrenous skin with pockmarks all over him, sort of draped um, heavily on a cross. And you find out gradually that the, this particular depiction of Christ is the depiction of a Christ who is afflicted by a plague, by a disease, the care of which, the care of those suffering from that disease, was the purpose of the monastery in Eisenheim. In other words, by viewing the picture of Christ, you are seeing a picture of capital D dignified suffering on the part of those patients as well who gathered for care 
in that place. And so there's something interesting about that particular depiction of suffering, that it doesn't, it's not pornographic in the sense that it draws you so deeply into the picture that you kind of appropriate it or you, you, you somehow get fascinated or, or even distressed by the suffering that's being depicted. Instead, by meditating in a particular space, on a particular image, depicting a particular form of suffering, you then by have your eyes so shaped, so cleansed, so peaked that you see those, and presumably those who gathered in the chapel to view this, this icon, this vast mm. painting, they were then the ones that attended to the people in their rooms. So you then see the flesh and blood suffering with eyes that have been cleansed or clarified by the meditation on this particular version of divine suffering. In, in, in that sense, it's an image. I don't know quite else how to put this. Well, it's designed to uplift. Yeah. Well, no, no, not quite uplift. The image mediates the possibility of genuine moral encounter. The image obviates the possibility of merely physical revulsion. Sorry, yes, that's what I meant by the okay. uplifting. Okay. The uplifting of the status of the of the person for whom you're caring. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I what, you... what is kind of interesting there, though? Uh, that strikes me as so utterly different from so many of the other images with which we are assaulted today of other people. If there's a political figure that you don't like, what's the image that's going to keep popping up on the news site that also is ideologically opposed to them? It's going to be one that portrays them as sneering or as buffoonish or as wincing or as embarrassed. And I think that one of the things that images do is they cultivate conditions of contemptuousness. The, the images that well, we... They can. Well, yes, yes, they, they, they can. And I think predominantly the way that we now use them, the way we now consume them, is they shape the way we view others rather than facilitating or mediating the possibility of genuine moral encounter. And I would suggest, and I'll shut up after this, that it's not just the image as such but it's also what you're prepared to do with it to the extent to which you're allowed, you're prepared to sit with it, to stay with it, to meditate mm. on it. And um, what it awakens within you. Yes, that's, that's right. I think that's right. Which is why I think something like pornography bears a lot of thinking about because of what it awakens. Yeah. Let's bring in a guest. Our guest is one of our favorites. I mean, she's so much one of our favorites that she appeared on last during last year's Ramadan series, both at the beginning and the end of the series. And she was so good, we thought, how could we not have her back? Rebecca Roselle Stone is professor of philosophy at the University of North Dakota. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us once again on The Minefield. Thank you so much, Scott and Waleed. It's good to be speaking with you right now. So let's, let, let's begin with a slight... Uh, sidestep. I mean, it's it's not a sidestep, but I think it's another way of getting into the same conversation. You can't read much moral philosophy. It might be Plato, it might be Al Ghazali or Thomas Aquinas, or more recently, it might be Iris Murdoch, Simone Weil, Stanley Cavell. You can't read much moral philosophy without being struck by the fact that forms of, let's call it moral debility, the inability to see someone in their full humanity, the inability to view the world um, in a manner that's generous and tender, the ability to empathize, the ability to feel compassion, the ability to reason well, the ability to speak well, all of these things that might count as either a moral virtue or moral capacity or moral debility, they're often described in terms of visual impairment. I mean, the one that immediately comes to mind is Stanley Cavell's description of the inability of one person to see or to recognize the common humanity in another person as being a person in a condition of soul blindness. Simone Weil famously referred to the practice or the process of attentiveness, of sort of fixed attentive devotion onto the moral reality of another person, as did Iris Murdoch. Why is it that vision, that sight, seems to be so clearly or intimately associated with the moral life? Well, I think there's always been a primacy placed on vision in at least the history of Western philosophy, right? It's, it's the metaphor for knowing 
understanding um, and in a more violent sense, appropriating and, and consuming. But even, you know, if we think about Plato, for instance, and in, in the Phaedrus, he describes um, how our desire for truth and goodness begins with the eyes, right? We gaze upon beauty that sparks, you know, this kind of internal eros, erotic drive. Um, as he puts it, the wings of the soul start fluttering in anticipation of, you know, the encountering of true eternal beauty. And, and this kind of seeing elevates the soul because it reminds us of what's eternal, what, what endures. And so I think that gets carried along throughout our history of philosophy with this notion that, yeah, to really um, be open to another person to empathize with them is a kind of seeing them, um, an openness to them, and, and understanding. But obviously, that has its its negative side too, because you know, as someone like Levinas would say, vision is a kind of domination at times, like the insistence that someone stand in our light, that they be known to us, that they be fully revealed and transparent to us. Well. That can't happen, right? I mean, there's there is mystery in, in other people, especially. And so I think I've gotten away from your question, but I, I think it's really interesting that you're right. There has been this emphasis placed on vision as a way of of connecting and having a moral attunement to others. But clearly, vision can also be um, a violent means of, of appropriation and can assumption. I, can I just pick up on one thing, Waleed, and then I'll, I'll hand it over to you. Is, it, is that all right? Of course. I mean, this is really interesting because the insistence that something or someone present themselves wholly to be known. I mean, your description then is to stand in the light, to sort of open themselves up to our lucid gaze. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're absolutely right. That is a form of ocular violence. I mean, there really is no other description, I think. I mean, part of the moral reality of another person is the depth of their personhood. There are things that are hidden. There are things that not only cannot be known, but the very process of moral knowing is the grappling with, trying to understand that which cannot be known. In the example that I brought up with Waleed before, speaking with another person, and there's that flash of recognition, or the one that really always affects me, the barely perceptible wince of pain. It seems to me that what makes that powerful is that it's nearly concealed. Whereas if you think about, I mean, this may be tasteless and I'm certainly not meaning it to be, but the pornographic demand is that everything is visible. Everything is available and consumable. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everything can be seen. Whereas the conditions of moral encounter, and I think the conditions of the cultivation of the eyes, is wrestling with shadow without wanting or insisting that everything suddenly steps into the light. Wrestling with what is unknowable, trying to allow the other person to offer up responses rather than demanding kind of full exposure in advance. Does that, is that a good way of proceeding or do you think there's still sort of serious drawbacks to that? I definitely think that that's right. I mean, therein lies their humanness, as you're saying. Um, it's that subtlety that, you know, sense that there's always more to give, always more to be revealed to us, but on the other's time, not mm-hmm. via mm-hmm. our own demanding and not via our own, you know, illumination of them through or, or attempts at illumination. But that's that's right. That subtlety is what I think is really has that depth and, and is what we should be morally attuned to. And, and as a side thought, it made me think about um, this may seem like a bizarre comparison, but the difference between like British comedy and American comedy, where to me, British comedy is so subtle and it's so much in, you know, character and facial expressions and little gestures that you can almost miss. But a lot of American comedy is so didactic and it just tells you like, here's where you need to laugh. <laughs> and, it's you know, I, I less so, that... don't you think, Rebecca? I feel like, Maybe. I mean, I don't want to turn this into a comedy episode, but uh, I don't know, there's a new <laughs> genre of sort of hyper-realist type 
comedy where things are quite subtle, even in America? I, th I think so, because we've been copying the Brits, maybe, like right. with The Office okay. um, and some of these shows. So I think we're getting better, but but it makes me realize, yeah, the extent to which you lose that humanity and that that sense of a true ability to connect when when everything is so staged and illuminated and and given an explicit, maybe even pornographic kind of ways. Um, so so mm. I, I appreciate the the philosophy of the shadows when it comes to thinking about moral vision. And there's a great book by a Japanese philosopher, uh, Junichiro Tanizaki, who wrote In Praise of Shadows. Mm. And he talks about the Japanese aesthetics and how there is an appreciation for, for more darkness and obscurity and shadows patina and not the shininess that Westerners seem to prefer. For instance, when, when you all were talking about the kind of speech that would be uh, morally uplifting, he, he has this thing, he says, Japanese music, so thinking about sound, is a music of reticence, of atmosphere. We prefer in conversation the soft voice, the understatement, the pauses, and goes on to contrast that with how, again, Westerners think it's about being as loud as possible, filling all of the, the airwaves and the voids. And in terms of texting, again, when you all were talking about this, I was thinking about even though texting is using words, how often are they in all caps where it's a kind of screaming or this imagification of, of the words. It's barely conversation or language at that point, I think. I use all caps in two situations, I think. One is when I'm saying happy birthday to someone, and the other <laughs> is around an exciting sporting result. I think that's about it. And neither Scott nor I use emojis. We, we keep returning to this theme of things being explicit, which means I suppose we have to talk about sexualized imagery at some point, but not quite yet, because I want to lay the the groundwork for that, Rebecca. And I'm wondering if you have any reflections on this idea, the way in which that what we see, and here I mean images, but I also just mean what we see in the world. Mm. I mean, I don't think we call them images, would we? But just the sight, the things that come in through our faculty of sight, the way in which they pierce the heart. I, I'm, you know, I've got a, a friend of mine who studied architecture for a long time. And one of the most arrest. I don't even know if he remembers saying this to me. One of the most arresting things he ever told me is the, I was going to say neurological, but maybe it's deeper than that. It might even be spiritual impact of human beings observing and being in an environment that has a lot of natural materials in it, right? Soil, wood, grass, trees, other forms of greenery, sky, whatever. The impact that has on us, how we feel and what our state is compared to the stuff that makes our cities, you know, steel, concrete, glass, uh, is apparently quite profound. We actually feel more agitated, it seems, in these artificial environments where we use these artificial materials. Now, the only way we can really perceive that, it seems to me, unless there's some other kind of sense going on, is through sight, is through the faculty of sight, that we can look at, th there's a reason people like to stand on a cliff and look out at an ocean, and it, it creates something within us. It, I don't know, it, it turns on certain faculties, maybe faculties of reflection or whatever, what you might call higher faculties. And yet if we contrast that with looking at things that are designed to stimulate, that is, they are designed to appeal to our baser faculties, then that leaves in the end the sort of long run remnants in our souls, in our in our states of being. And here, perhaps to get too quickly to the example of pornography, I think of those studies that talk about the way that people who use pornography often end up becoming just generally more aggressive in their demeanour or whatever. Because the the question is what through sight, what is being fed here? And I, I wonder if you've got any reflections sort of in that area. Because this is, I find it a difficult thing to talk about, and I suspect a lot of our audience right now, if they're still with us, are finding it a difficult thing to listen to because it's not something we ever think about in our society. We sort of take images as a given and act as though they are neutral and their impact upon us is neutral, but also our interaction with them is neutral. 
Right. I, I definitely think there's an effect on us bodily, sensibly, um, in terms of our relationships, our sense of alienation from the world and from other people. And of course, as we've been saying, right, more than ever now, we're inundated with images. Oftentimes, these images are coming from the news as potential evidence of crimes, oppression, war. So our psychic world becomes really colonized by what we might call this image industry. But I think then there's this question of scale and degree, right? When does becoming responsibly informed, for instance, about the news, turn into a kind of voyeuristic doom scrolling that then has this effect on us where we we carry that disposition, I think, into the world in a way that makes us less... um, we take things less seriously. It has a kind of flattening effect on us as we become like a full spectator, not one who is sensibly encountering the world, but viewing everything as a potential photograph or image Mm -hmm. or for our entertainment. And so I do think there's, you know, thinking about fasting, is there a kind of fasting for vision that that might be helpful here. And and I think if not fasting, at least we could think about how we might attune our vision differently when it comes to these images so that we're not becoming so alienated from ourselves and each other. Even Um, the idea of of fasting of the eyes is interesting, right? Because I think we live in a culture where we tend to use things, use phrases like you cannot look away Mm. from X or certain things are eye-catching or whatever. But the, the you cannot look away thing is interesting because on the one hand, we all know what that means and we've all experienced that thing. And that idea that this is not something I should look at or this is something that is horrible to look at, like a car crash, but I cannot look away. There's a kind of resignation in that though, isn't there? It seems like what's gone from that is the idea that we might want to look but shouldn't at something. I, can you think of an example in popular culture where people would generally agree that there is something you might really want to look at but shouldn't. I I find it hard to think of examples, which perhaps, if I'm right about that, speaks to a certain ethos that that undergirds it or perhaps a a certain heedlessness when it comes to paying attention to what what it is that we look at and draw in to ourselves. Hmm. Can I pick up something there? I might just give you a second longer to think, Rebecca. I mean, this is this for me really begins getting immensely complicated. And it's complicated by the fact that we are living at the end of a decades-long erosion of the capacities of the eyes. There's nobody in this world that's kind of taught me more about the moral capacities and the moral dangers of photographs and images than Susan Sontag. Um, she's sort of the, the great third of this triumvirate of Simone Weil, Iris Murdoch. And Susan Sontag, uh, you know, in her great sort of 1977 book on photography, she analyzed, to my mind, in a manner that's nearly peerless, that images, photographs have been invested with a kind of moral quality. This gives you a sliver of the world. This brings an experience far away to you. You're able to experience it. You're becoming more informed by viewing it. And yet she pointed out that the avalanche, the cascade, the surfeit of images ends up having the effect of blurring our capacity to read them. So we simply move on to the next one and the next one and the next one. And even when there's one that is genuinely morally affecting, then it becomes something more like a shock. It becomes something that stuns us or that renders us speechless or that kind of whips up emotions, but we have no idea what it is that we ought to really do with it. So, I mean, part of her great aesthetic labor as a cultural critic was to teach us how to read images. And I always loved the fact that she never, ever, ever reproduced images in any of her books on photography or on reading images. We need to to be able to read them. And I think what that begins to get to is that, you know, Walid and Rebecca, you were both talking before about kind of the prevailing aesthetic. Byung-Chul Han, the great Korean-German philosopher, has also done something about the way that our aesthetics have become debased to the extent that we love smooth and metallic surfaces. We like marks on the skin, but only if they've been put there deliberately. In other words, not blemishes or imperfections. 
We prefer surfaces that are stripped clean and sterile. We prefer skin that has no hair. Our, our predominant aesthetic is light and smooth and curved and wholly the product of our own making. Whereas things that really do classify as beautiful, as arresting to the eyes, as attention-grabbing in the sense that Simone Weil might use the term attention. In other words, attention that decenters the self and that almost makes us bow before what it is that we've seen in awe or in humility or in amazement. These are the things that have almost disappeared wholly from our capacity to read images and to understand ourselves as beings that have an aesthetic sense. And I just wonder, you know, Rebecca, you kind of intimated at this before. Maybe it's not that there's anything wrong with images per se. Maybe it's not even the fact that there are simply so many of them. But we've become incapable. We've become, to some extent, aesthetically blind or calloused in the way that we view images, because for those images that really ought to arrest us, that ought to stop us in our tracks, we don't surround that image with the necessary space and time and silence and fasting, in other words, refusing to scroll through to the next one. We don't linger. We don't attend. We simply move on with all the horrible residual feelings that go along with it. In, in other words, I, I wonder if there's a kind of ethical come aesthetic debility that surrounds so much of what it is we're talking about. I think absolutely. And and your citing of Han is perfect there because I was also thinking, and, and I think he mentions this, how our technologies like the skin of our tablets and smartphones are also smooth yes, and right. glossy. And, you know, and so we're viewing something like a naughty, rough oak tree through these smooth tablets. And what is that doing to our understanding and relationship to that natural world there, I think, as, as you're suggesting, we need a kind of discipline and practice when it comes to viewing images. It's not that images in and of themselves are evil, but the degree to which we receive them now, the, the scale where it's overwhelming, all-consuming, we have to develop new modes of encountering those images so that we're we're able to parse and we're able to make fine distinctions and understand the nuances. And I mean, I have some ideas about how we might start to do that differently. Um, one might be, yeah, simply less mediation, less blue light, more embodied presence. And of course, that would be doing away with images in some sense. But I think we don't have to completely exorcise the images from our lives if we're also in touch with the real. And I think it's not just about vision, but about using all of our senses when we're in front of something like whether it's a tree or a cat or another person, really being able to hear. Sometimes maybe it's about tasting, touching. I have to say one thing I appreciate about our conversations on the minefield is that, you know, it's weird to say this, but that I cannot see either of you. Mm. There's something liberating about that for me. I'm not self-conscious. I'm able to just sort of look up at the ceiling and think and and listen in ways that I, I don't often feel talking to people, even in person. But, but the point there is, again, I think we lose the importance of these other senses when we are so visually predominant in our culture. But we might also learn to look from new angles and in different kind of lights, you know, less artificial, less electric light, uh, more candlelight. And something that I think her name is Sherry Tishman calls slow looking, that we can, you know, slow down the pace, we can linger over the things that we're gazing out and not just scan headlines or images quickly so that we have quick anecdotes for something, but, but allowing things to really affect us deeply so that we don't become so amnesiac about what we've just witnessed, but where we can have a real meaningful response. Because that's my sense of the trouble that people have is what's the correlation between our witnessing of all of these images and, and the praxis? It oftentimes feels like there's, there's not a response. And so then it feels like doom scrolling, right? I feel impotent. What am I doing? I'm just reading and looking at images of, of Ukraine and these other atrocities and, and what of it. So I think slowing down, 
letting letting things register with us, focusing on fewer images perhaps, using more of our senses can lead us to more meaningful and, and practical results. The, yeah, no, I think that's a really important observation. And I was thinking about the, where you were saying you're glad you can't see us, and I know exactly what you mean because it does it facilitates thought in a slightly different way. Mm. But there is something about the the image of someone becoming well known. Like it, it increases fame and it increases recognition of. But it but it also does something else to them that makes them somehow seem less. Like I was just thinking, here's a thought experiment, Scott. You might enjoy this. If we had like lots and lots of video of Aristotle speaking <laughs> or Socrates or Plato, or any, any, what would we think of them? Like what would they become? I mean, maybe they would become nothing different because they're not reality TV content in the way that the Kardashians are or something like that. But I do wonder that they might become Kardashianified or something, that, you know, they, they, would, they would become something different because a different element to them, a whole different dimension to them is presented, indeed foregrounded to yeah. us. That's just so different from the legacy that they have left behind in the world where we, we don't have images of them. Yeah. I've got really nothing immediately to say to that. Really? I, mean, I thought well, you would be all over. Well, I mean, what I'd like to say is we would discover immediately their fallibility, their humanness. Um, I mean, there are people much closer to us. There's no audio of Simone Weil. There's a very, very little bit of video of Iris Murdoch. I mean, some of the most disappointing experiences of my life have been meeting people that I've been reading for years and then encountering <laughs> them. And, I mean, the fallible ones are fine. It's the ones that are assholes that you just think, I, I, I can never <laughs> read that work the same way again. So, I mean... I think there's there's something there, but um, yeah, yeah. I think people of different generations might see the video differently too. I mean, maybe we would view Aristotle speaking in a like, well, that's interesting, you know, and and maybe pick out certain particularities. But my students, I think this TikTok generation, they would find immediately his shticks. They would find something that he would become known for. Maybe appearance-wise, laugh about it. It would become entertaining to them. And I don't think it's an accident that more and more students seem to want to gravitate toward um, videos and PowerPoints in class that they say that helps them learn. And I'm not so sure. I think it it feeds a certain kind of desire that they have, but I don't know that that's the kind of learning I'm trying to facilitate. Mm. Well, I think we've concluded the minefield will never be released as video. Uh, Scott probably has had conversations with people at the ABC about plans for such things. It's going to be hard for us to go back uh, or to embrace anything like that. Rebecca, thank you very much for letting us reach that conclusion, if nothing else, but um, also for your contribution to this conversation. It's been, as always, invaluable. Oh, thank you. Rebecca Rosell Stone, Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, uh, which is now at an end. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.